We always come together with a real sense of expectancy because those of us who've been in this room now for 13 times, God has never failed to dis- has never failed to astound us, and He has never yet disappointed us in what He's done. It's been staggering to see, and uh, by the time Sunday is here, many of us won't even recognize ourselves. Thank God. I want to ask you some more questions, and then I want to pray with you because uh, Ian asked you a question. But I want to ask you a question. If you had to answer these questions, which is most important to me? What would you say tonight? My plans or God's purposes? Which one is more important to you? And that may seem easy to answer, but we're talking about reality here. Which is more important, my plans or God's purposes? Second, which is more important to me this weekend to settle, my reputation or God's honor? Which is more important? Because, you see, it's easy to say one thing and live another. Then thirdly, which is more important to me, my personal happiness or God's pleasure? Because sometimes those two contradict one another for seasons. Then, which is more important to me? My possessions or being possessed fully by God? Which is? Which is more important? Living for the future or preparing for eternity? We're just doing a little plowing here in our minds at the beginning. Which would you rather have, physical health and safety or spiritual well-being? And I'd like to add another one. Would you rather feel right or would you rather be right? Which one? Because getting right, many times you don't feel right as you move toward that particular place. In fact, you feel pretty miserable many times. Well, I believe the church in our day needs to get back to the basics. We have a great title for this conference and we're going to seek to get back to the basics. Many people think they've outgrown the basics or maybe they're moving the other direction from the basics. But our God uh, wants us to stay like little children. And uh, the deeper you go with God, the simpler your life will get. Well, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you will speak to our hearts and that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will be glorified. We give you permission to dredge up our lives. There are those here who don't really know why they've come, perhaps, and others that they know why they come and they're afraid. Others aren't even expecting what you're going to do in their lives. But whatever you do, we know it's right and it's good and it's forever. And we want you to do it. So we give you permission in advance because you're good. And we rebuke the devil collectively, all of us, in the name of Jesus and declare this is holy ground and the enemy cannot thwart the wonderful, wonderful will of God for each man, for each family represented here, for the wives, for the children that will benefit from your good word in our hearts, for our churches, for our jobs, for our Lord, for our own lives and for the sake of our nation as well, mostly for Jesus' sake, would you speak to our hearts. And we thank you in advance with expectancy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to go to one of the oldest books, if not the oldest book. Many think it is the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. And I want to get back to the foundational message that is in the book of Job. Some of you might think I'm going to speak on suffering, but in my opinion, that's not the theme of the book of Job. That is one of the things that's in the book of Job, but in the book of Job, we see what is perhaps the oldest book, and therefore, if you know God's Word and His principles, that what is first mentioned, or what is oldest, is often foundational. There's a principle in the Scriptures, the law of first mention. Whenever something is mentioned, First, like love in Genesis 22, God uses it a certain way and it sets a precedent and builds on that for the rest of the 
Word of God. And in this old ancient book of Job, so ancient they don't even really know who Job was. Perhaps he was from the book of Genesis, uh, somewhere in those first chapters, maybe before chapter, uh, in the first 15 chapters somewhere. Uh, we see Job, a great man, verse 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man, God's testimony of him is that he is perfect, he was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and hated evil. Now, God repeats that himself two other times about Job. And it's a description that the Holy Spirit gives of Job. So we need to see that he was mature or perfect. He was at, at the goal. Actually, Job is going to start out where we have set our goal. And it will really teach us something about his, his experience, God's description. So uh, we read in verse 2, There were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. That's a double quiver. Five times two. And his substance was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And I would imagine he was probably one of the busiest as well. He didn't have a computer. And, uh, and he took care of all that. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them. How? It says, He rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of all his children. Now, it's interesting to me that God speaks about Job as being a perfect and a upright and fearing, hating evil man. And the one characteristic he mentions first off is that he's a man of prayer, especially for his family. It's really the only one he really sets forward. And uh, it's for our learning. We are to do the same thing, to rise up and pray for our family. For Job said this in his heart, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus he did continually. He was always praying for his family. He was putting the blood of the lamb over that door and keeping out the destroyer. Now there was a day when the sons of God came in to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? Now when the Lord asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Because he wants an answer. And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in all the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? That old roaring lion, the devil, going to and fro. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord initiated this whole thing, not the devil. Have you considered my servant Job, or have you set your heart upon my servant Job? There's no one like him in the earth. God says it. A perfect and upright man, one who fears God, and he hates evil. He's the best man on earth, he's saying. And then Satan answered the Lord, and by his answer he showed he had considered Job. Oh my, doth Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge round about him and his house? That's the answer to prayer, friends. A hedge of prayer. God had protected his family. And the devil, even though he was walking around, looking in, could not get in. And about all that he has on every side, there's a hedge. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But you put forth your hand now and touch all he has, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, if you'll take away the reason for blessings that he's so glad about you, then he'll curse you to your face. And with that, there was a contest set up, and in a, in a sense. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power only upon himself. Put not forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now keep in mind, the devil works from the outside in. The Holy Ghost works from the inside out. And so the enemy starts on the periphery and begins to try to get inside. And he'll do that with you. He begins to eat away. And it says, verse 13, And there was a day, just another day, but a specific day to God's calendar, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And there came a message to Job saying, The oxen were plowing and the asses beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away and they killed your servants with the edge of the sword and I'm the only one left. 
well, that was bad news. But then we read, while he was just finishing speaking, somebody else came in and they said, oh, the, uh, the, the fire of God fell from heaven on the sheep and burned them up. And then while he was speaking, another came in and said, the Chaldeans, verse 17, made three bands and fell on your camels and they slew the rest of your servants in that. And I'm the only one left. And verse 18, while he was speaking, the sons and daughters, while they were in the house, someone came in and verse 19 said, Behold, there is a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they're dead. And I'm the only one escaped to tell you. Well, so what you have is bankruptcy, immediate, just like that. And bereavement of his children. You see, Job's way down the road from where we are, friends. I'm going to tell you, I mean, I, I get nauseated when I hear people criticize Job with trivial, trivial uh, complaints about his confession and all the rest. And in fact, in verse 22, uh, God said, in all these things, Job did not sin, nor did he charge God foolishly. And in a little later, it says, in all that was said by Job, he sinned not with his lips. So Job did not get what he said. That's settled from the word of God. What is the purpose of all this happening to Job? Uh, Job, when he heard this, instead of beginning to worry like you or I might do, or immediately run for help from his friends, which we would commonly do, or call the prayer chain, it says in verse 22, Job arose and he tore his coat, or his mantle, shaved his head, and he fell down on the ground. Instead, and instead of rebellion, he worshipped. He worshipped God. And he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return from there, uh, return there. And uh, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Well, so he has bankruptcy, he has bereavement, but then the devil came back to, uh, to the Lord, and in verse 2 of chapter 2, the Lord said to Satan again, he initiates from where have you come? Same answer, going to and fro. And the Lord said, verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in the earth. A perfect, upright man, one who fears God and hates evil. See, he was still the same way God was saying. And uh, he's way down the road from me, friends, I'm going to tell you. Uh, and still he holds fast his integrity. See, he lost his family. He lost his money. He lost everything, his servants. But he didn't lose his integrity the missing element of so many lives today. And although, look at what God says, look at this, although you have moved me against him to destroy him, look at these next words, without a cause. God said that. So let's remove forever the fact that Job was the cause of what happened to him. God is doing something greater than his sufferings. He's producing something in the heart of the best man on earth. And so Satan said, Lord, to the Lord, skin for skin, ha, all that a man has he'll give for his life. You put forth your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse your face. If you quit blessing him, if you quit taking care of his health, he'll go somewhere else. He'll curse you to your face. That's what he's saying. And the Lord said, go ahead, Satan. You can, you can have everything but his life. And so he went forth and he smote him with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. Uh, boils, not these little kind, but in the Hebrew, the big kind that ooze, and you can't even sit. You're walking around, and he went, and he sat on a place where they burned ashes at the dump. He went down to the dump, oozing pus, and he got broken pottery and began to scrape those boils until the gook came out. Now, that's what the picture is, really. Nothing could be worse as a picture as he sat among the ashes. And then his wife comes. See, first bankruptcy, then bereavement, now boils, and now the hardest of all, a badgering wife. <laughs> and his wife said to him, Do you still retain your honor? Oh, you're very religious. I can almost hear her. Curse God and die. Well, he said to her, You speak like a foolish woman speaks. That took courage. Well, <laughs> what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? In all this did Job not sin with his lips. Well, Job had some friends that heard about this and they were very concerned. They came for comfort, but they end up criticizing. They really do. And that many times what we 
try to get involved in things in prayer. We spend more time analyzing and criticizing than really truly interceding and praying. But they looked up at Job. They didn't even recognize it. He was so full of pus and gook and, and, uh, and, and disappointment and lines on his head and face. They, they came and they sat down with him and were quiet for seven days. And so Job opened up his mouth and began to curse God. You see, Job never heard that dialogue that we just read. All he knew, his world caved in. He didn't hear what we read about heaven going on. He didn't know there had been a conversation between God. In fact, this didn't add up for him. It's like maybe one of our children dying or something without any word or hint at all, and we just say, what is going on? But he still didn't sin. And so... uh, At this point, Job, you see, is being watched. He's watched by you. He's watched by me. It's true. We're watching him, maybe later through the Word, but we're seeing what happened to him. Well, in the book of Ephesians, it says that the church, the church, Ephesians 3.10, we are the same way Job is. You see, you know who's watching Job? The devil. All the devil's angels. All the angels of God. He is in the heavenly Colosseum. I mean, not only are we watching him, saints, but all those invisible principalities and powers have got their eye on him. And in Ephesians 3.10, God is talking about the church. It says, to the intent that now, at this moment, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realm might be known or made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. See, the church is a teaching tool. The church is teaching the same lesson that Job was teaching, and that is that a a man will love God for God alone and not all the things that God gives him, whether it be his family, whether it be his money, whether it be his health. No matter what it is, God is worthy to be loved and worshipped just for who he is. Now, you see, that was just theology to Job. (laughs) I I mean, I'm serious. He really believed he did that. And I really believe that I try to do that. And you probably believe you try to do that. But you see, we can't go beyond a certain place on our own. And so God uh, is going to teach these demons and others about what it means to worship. You know, over in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says in verse 12 that angels desire to look into these kind of things. So angels are watching us in this weekend. They're watching you. You see, at every moment of your life, even when you're alone in your bedroom with that magazine, there are angels watching you. There are demons watching you. And let me tell you something else that's going to happen. It's being recorded in books that are going to be open, just like Job's is. See, it's the same way. So there's no such thing that's anything hidden. It's going to be revealed. Whatever we cover, one day it's going to be uncovered. And it'll be seen before a thousand billion eyes. So it doesn't just matter the day he comes. He's going to look at today the same scrutiny that he did as he does the day he comes. It's, it's all going to be uh, nice and known, all things naked and open. Well, it says in Hebrews 12, 1, that, all, that, that, that there's a heavenly host that have gone on before, witnesses that are looking, they're heroes of the faith around the throne that are watching you and me. Now, there's debate about where that means that, but I believe the context shows that, that they know what's going on on earth. Listen, if angels know what's going on on earth, then so do those redeemed. And angels do because how could Luke say that three times that there's joy in the presence of God among the holy angels when someone repents, a sinner repents. So there's joy. There's throne, the throne in heaven is very, very aware of what's going on on earth. And I praise God for that. In fact, one other scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, believe it or not, this is uh, introductory. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because I want to take you to what God's doing in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We've still got a little bit of introduction left, though. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, rich and affluent in surroundings, and they're being tossed about by all kinds of human ideas about God's Word who they're going to follow, this teacher, that teacher, and they're fighting and they're, they're off-center, they've got off-purpose and they've been misdirected, so he comes back with the cross. It's the cross. And then he uses his own testimony. And he says, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, Who makes you different from another? Or what did you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, meaning from God, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Now, you are full, you are rich, you have reigned as kings. 
apart from us. I wish to God that you truly did reign like you say he's saying. He's saying, I wish you really did reign like you say you reign so that we also might reign with you. But see, he's showing the contradiction between the apostles and these carnal believers. I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as if it were, it appears, appointed to death. In other words, we look like we're constantly being put to death. For we were made a spectacle. And that word in the Greek is the word for Roman Colosseum. It's an amazing word. We are in the Colosseum, just like Job was, just like Daniel was. Everybody in the Word's been in there, and we are too. We are made a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. We, you are honorable, but have a great reputation, but we are despised. Even to this present hour, we are hungry and thirsty and naked and buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. We labor, working with our hands. We're, we're reviled and we bless them back. We're persecuted and we suffer it. He talks about being slandered and we entreat them. We are made like the filth of this world and we're just like Ajax washed down the drain. That's what it's saying. We scrub a pot. God uses us to scrub the pots, the filthiness off, and then He washes us down the drain. That's exactly what it says right there. And then he says, verse 14, I write these things not to shame you. I'm not trying to make a big contrast, but as my beloved, I'm warning you. You're off target. Get back to the basics. For though you have had 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet uh, you have not many fathers. This is the Father's heart in Jesus. I have begotten you through the gospel. I beseech you. In other words, stop doing what you're doing and follow me. Follow me. He says, be imitators of me. And you know, anybody who has ever taken up their cross can say that. You see, Paul was, I made a little list this afternoon of what happened to him. Uh, it, it, it says that in Acts 19, 16, God, Acts 9, 16, God said, uh, I'm going to show you how many tribulations and troubles you must go through to enter the kingdom of God. And he was uh, in toil and scourgings and in prisons. It says he was in deaths often. Five times he was flogged, totaling 195 lashes. That's a lot. Uh, three times beaten with rods, stoned to the point of death. Three times shipwrecked and a night and a day clinging on an oar in the ocean. Robbers, storms, hostile religious people, pagans, dangers in the wilderness, sickness, nakedness, cold, weariness, often nakedness without clothes, pain, hunger. And then he turns around and he says, light affliction, our light affliction, which is just for a few years, uh, works for us a far more and exceeding way to glory. You know what that did? That embarrassed the devil. See, because he saw that it was like Job. I mean, you see, he looks at you, the devil, or his little demons. Maybe you don't uh, uh, affect him enough to warrant a big, big demon messing you up because the devil's just finite. Maybe he sends, maybe he doesn't even send anybody because you're on his side, some of you. I'm serious. But those people who are seeking to go forward, adversity is not the sign of trouble necessarily. It may be the sign of approval. God's allowing you to learn. You see, here's what happened. The devil comes to me, and in my room, he, he, he draws me forth of some undealt with uh, independent desire. And so I go and I look at something or I try to find something to look at with my eyes that will satisfy this undealt with lust. And, uh, and right then there's a contest. I'm in this Colosseum. I mean, there's nobody else around, you see. But the devil's around and the angels are around that know and God's writers are around, those that make mention in the book. And how I choose what I do, the mindset, my moral purpose of my life either testifies worshiping God like Job did or I either dishonor him and the demons turn to God and go, ha, ha, ha. Uh, you call that a believer? And for this cause, the name of Christ is blasphemed. Not only in the world, you see, but in the spirit, in the spiritual heavenly realm. Here we are, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and we're acting like some leprous, unclean, never-meeting-Christ person. So we need to realize that God is wanting to lead us beyond where we are, or even, brother, where you would go in your own moral expansion. You see, 
in, in Psalm 4, verse 1, it says, In distress you have enlarged me. See, it takes affliction many times for me to be enlarged morally because I have to choose God when everything in me says to go the other way. You see, the theme of the book of Job is an amazing theme. I'm back to Job now. Uh, and you see, God... He was a man of faith, this Job. I mean, people, people say that, uh, that he had real problems, but, but let me just, I mean, he, he's amazing. In, uh, in Job chapter 13, uh, verse 15, look what he says, his testimony. He says, he says, verse 15, Though he slay me, I will trust in him, but I will maintain my own ways before him. You see, he's saying, I'm going to praise God no matter what, but I'm going to maintain my testimony. In other words, I do not believe that I have sinned against God. He had a strong conscience. But it was a deceived conscience in some sense because he wasn't deep as God wanted him to be. God was plowing through his natural goodness and he didn't even know it. Job chapter 19, look what he says. Talking about uh, faith, Job 19 verse 23, it's kind of like what you say. Boy, I wish I could tell somebody about this lesson. Look what Job, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that they were printed in the book. Well, you got your wish, Job. And your words are written down, brother. Idle words as well. That they were written in, with an iron pen and lead in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and He will stand at the last day on the earth, a living Redeemer, blood buyer, who will stand on the last day on earth. And though my skin is destroyed with worms, in my flesh I will see God. He's talking about resurrection, brother, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, even though my very motives be consumed with fire within me. He's saying, when I see Him, I'll be like Him. That's what he's saying. It's the confession of 1 John chapter 3. We, now we are the sons, but now we don't yet see it that way. I know that it will happen. And in chapter 23, verse 10, uh, Job says... Uh, he knows the way that I take. And when He has tested me, I will come forth like gold. That's 1 Peter 1.6. The testing of our faith is more precious than that of gold that's perishing. Let me tell you, Job knew what was going on. He had to, or he would have done what all flesh would do and be as grass and wilt beneath the heat. Well, Job, you see, had known only good times. In fact, if you look in chapter 29, you can see about... Uh, we won't read all that, but you should read it later. It talks about how that, that, uh, that in the past, he re he's in this trial and he's looking back at his past. He's saying, oh, look at how great it's been all through my past. And he said, I was, I was, I was anointed of God. I was, in the, I was in the, uh, uh, among the elders. And when I, after they were talking, I would stand up to speak. And when I got through, nobody had anything else to say. I mean, they just went, oh. And he was so anointed and he was so blessed. He was eyes for blind people. He gave his money to the poor. He had righteous judgment. He was known throughout the land for godly counseling. And uh, his tongue was right. Uh, and his, his wisdom was right. And he, uh, he says in verse 24, If I smiled on them when they did not believe, they believed it not. All I'm saying is that he comforted people. He was a great man. He's saying that's how it was. But, look at verse 30, verse 1. But now, even they that are younger than I have, have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to even set with the dogs of my flock. In other words, people who are so much younger than me in the Lord are laughing at me. They think that I'm in error. And, uh, and even though he wasn't the error, in a sense, it wasn't the error they were laughing at. See, three of Job's friends came. And if you would ever study those friends, you'd find that... Uh, these friends that came and searched him and looked at him, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they're the perfect example of the um, candid spiritual one that always says, I've seen it, I've seen it, I've seen it, basing on his spiritual experience. And then the next one comes and he's the uh, orthodox, humble, uh, uh, historic person that says, ask the fathers, ask the fathers, ask the fathers. And the third man is the, uh, the legalistic person that says uh, uh, that uh, weighed in the balances and found wanting. He's probably an older fellow that's been around a while. And uh, three of Job's friends come and give him all kinds of advice. I have 
a friend named Ron Dunn. Some of you might know him. But he says he was in the hospital and he was sick. And he says, by his own testimony, three of Job's friends came to see him. <laughs> and they said, brother, you know, the tone. Uh, Do you have the faith to be made whole? And um, Ron Dunn looked at him. He loved these guys. He said, yes, brother, I do have the faith to be made whole. I'm just not sure I have the faith to stay sick and glorify God when I don't understand it. It doesn't add up. It's like that little old German lady who was in a wheelchair for 40 years. Giant, giant prayer ministry. And uh, one day a man of God went to her who loved her, and he says, oh, mama, he called her mama. He said, you know, there's, there's healing in the blood. She says, oh, oh, I knowed it, brother. God would have healed me 30 years ago if, I, if I'd have let him. But then I run around like all these other women. You see, there's some things better than healing. There's some things better than deliverance. If you were to read in the book of Hebrews and you see that long list of heroes, Westminster Abbey of Faith, how they were great in faith and they subdued armies and wrought righteousness and stopped the mouth of lions and quenched the violence of fire and stopped the edge of the sword and all these things they did, uh, we're impressed. But then there's that beautiful group. It doesn't even say their name. I love it. Uh, and starting in verse 36, it said, Others by faith. They weren't delivered. Instead, they had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings and bonds and prison, stoned, sawn in half, tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered around in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And the writer stops at the breath and says, the world wasn't even worthy of these people, that they should set foot on it. You see, the world would look at them and say, you are out to lunch. You're a third race, the Romans call these early Christians. You're no good. There's the Romans, there's the Jews, and there's the... Christians, they're no good. Put them to death. Sew them up in skins and feed them to the dogs. Use them for torches in the garden. Kill them. And God says, you are not even worthy that these kind of people put their foot on earth with you. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and, and dens. All these did it so they could receive God's will in their life. You see, over in the book of James, chapter 1, we're told, brothers, count it all joy when, not if, you fall into different kinds of testings, knowing this. That's what Job knew, that the testing of our faith works endurance. But we've got to cooperate like Job, you see. We've got to, and Job wasn't perfect in his cooperation. Let patience have her perfecting work so that you may be perfect and entire, lacking or wanting nothing. You see, God is doing something, but I've got the privilege of cooperating with Him in a testimony in the showcase of glory. Angels, demons, the world, you name it, they're watching. And there's never a time that I'm alone in the fullest sense if I'm the Lord's and I can glorify Him. Well, what happened to Job is uh, we see over in James 5, the word to us, chapter 5, verse 11, James, I mean, I mean still in James uh, James chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. Take, my brothers, the prophets who've spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of endurance. Behold, we count those people happy which endure. And then it says, you've heard of the endurance of Job. And you've seen the end of the Lord. That's the key to the book of Job right there, that statement. You have seen the end result of the Lord. And that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, what then is the end of the Lord in the book of Job? Well, I believe that the whole theme of the book of Job is repentance. You see, not suffering, but it's the repentance of a Christian, of a believer. Not a Christian in the New Testament sense, but a believer and a righteous man who testimonially wise, has it all together. Some of you have come and you are ready to get blessed this weekend and you will get blessed. But I'm going to tell you what, God's going to take us down some notches first. F.B. Meyer used to say that when he was just a beginning Christian, he saw God's gifts on shelves and he thought that the more you grow and praise God that you'd reach up and get the best gifts. He said, I've come to see as I've had light from God that God's best gifts aren't on the tall shelves they're on the lower shelves, the lowest shelves of all. That as we are humbled and come down, God gives us the best things of all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. The sacrifices of God 
or a broken and a contrite spirit, a heart that's like that, he will never despise. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where is the temple of my rest? He says to this man, this man, Isaiah uh, 66, 1, this man I will look, uh, he who trembles at my word and, uh, and who hears it and, and has respect unto me. And so if you and I were writing a book about repentance, we might take someone that is obviously pagan and say, I think I'll write a book about a demonstration of repentance. And you would say, amen, brother, that guy needs to repent. But when God wants to write a book on repentance, he's so unlike you and me. He didn't take the worst man. He took the best man on earth and showed how he needed to repent so that it would shut every one of our mouths before God and none of us could say, well, there's nothing I need to repent of. Because you see, all through the book of Job, God is sifting and taking him down and he's bringing him to the end of Job. And what is that? That the, at the Job is half-hearted in his repentance. And, he, and in fact, in chapter 30, after uh, he's rehearsing of how he was, in chapter 30, just 90 verses, uh, it's absolutely incredible. 146 times he uses the word I, me, my. He's so centered on himself and his own spiritual condition that he doesn't realize that it's the same situation that Paul is in in Romans 7. Me, my, and I. And it's getting all God has for me. Possessing my possessions. I'll tell you something. There is a brand of theology going through our land that is intensely selfish at the core. It worships God in righteous rags without a cross right at the very altar undisturbed. And spiritual growth and spiritual blessing, if that's the motive, it can be like it was for Job without him even knowing it. And God has to bring the axe to the root of the tree and rid him of that captivity to himself. You see, God turned the captivity of Job. When did he do it? At the very end, after Job, who was the best man on earth, actually he saw God at a new depth. He saw God and he says these amazing words in chapter 42. He says, he said, Lord, I've spoken all these things without any knowledge at all. I've, I've said things too wonderful for me. I didn't know anything about. Uh, and so God uh, hears him say in verse 5, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. I've been in church. I've heard you preached. And I've said, Amen. But now, my eye sees you. Listen, only the pure in heart can see God. Without holiness, no man will see God. My eye sees you. What does that mean when it says no man has seen God at any time? I don't know. But Job was down the road, friends. Therefore, because I see you and I know myself, I hate myself. I hate my own life. And I repent in dust and in ashes. And at that point, those people that had been needling him, he turns and prays for them. And at that point, God turned his captivity. God turned his captivity to his own prison of self and loosed him into the praying for others and the purposes of God. And at that point... It says that the Lord had the latter end of Job twice as much as before. Now he could really be trusted with it. Well, the bottom line is basically where I'm bringing you in this, this first thought tonight is that God wants us to see that even though we may see our condition as being truly blessed, and we are blessed in our country, and even though we've heard a lot of truth and you may have come for one thing this weekend. God may have another whole thing together for you than the reason you've come. You see, your life may be in perfect scriptural order to the best that you know, but God wants to show you Himself. And when you see, it's not the badness of man necessarily that makes us be broken and repent. It's the goodness of God. It's a, it's a glimpse of the goodness of God in spite of my badness. It's the goodness of God, Romans 2, 4, that leads me to the deepest brokenness and repentance of all. Have you ever cried over your sins? I mean, really cried, lately. Have you ever been before God and been weeping over your sins? You see, we're not delivered from those things in our lives that, you know, if any man say he has no sin, he's deceived his own heart. I mean, today, every single one of us 
if we weren't under the grace of God and walking by His pure mercies, we would be consumed. We've done it, brother. And you say, well, I'm free from sin. Well, you are free from the penalty of sin and you're justified by faith. He sees you complete in Him. But I want you to know that we've looked at things and said things with our lips that will never be of quality of like in heaven. And were God to let you in heaven without changing you beforehand, you would quickly be dispelled because you wouldn't fit. I'm just saying we have no room for boasting. And so... There's a, there's a reason that we should be able to cry over our sins and what those sins meant before God and what they merit before God. Uh, in the Lord, we're perfect, but outside of Him, there's no hope at all. Now, we're told that God is love, and we're told that He wants to bless us. And we say we want Him to bless us. Like, sin revival, Lord. Sin revival. And we try to sing our way into revival. You can't enter a revival by singing. You're in a revival by sighing. It's not the top blowing off, it's the bottom falling out. That's the way in. It's the back door. God comes in the back door and slams it. He says, hey, I want to deal back here with all these unpleasantries that you've been trying to sidestep and ignore and go away with. You see, God God's loves us. We want Him to bless us. We want Him to love us. But where is the discrepancy then with why aren't we experiencing more than we are? The missing piece, friends, is the meaning of the book of Job. That's the whole missing piece. Uh, do you, we say, do you believe that everyone's a sinner? And you say, yes, of course I believe that. The Bible says that. Do you believe that God loves those sinners? Well, yes, He loves those sinners. Of course He does. Well, do you believe that everyone's going to heaven? If God loves those sinners, and we're all sinners, do you think everyone's going to heaven? Well, no. Well, why not? God's not designing that any should perish. Well... The missing link is repentance. That's the missing link. And you know what? Just like the enemy tried to change God's word to Eve in the garden, he's trying to leave that repentance today as well. Trying to distort God's character. Trying to uh, make him a nice old fellow that we'll run up to and slap him on the back with our living Bible when we see him. Hey, Jesus, bless you. It's great to see you. Listen, we'll have that kind of friendship with him. Eventually, I don't think we'll slap him on the back. I mean, you just won't be doing that much uh, unless he does it first. I'm not, I'm not pretending to know, but I'm just saying when you first see him, it'll be like John. I mean, John put his head on his chest at the Last Supper, but when he saw Jesus as he is today, he fell at his feet like a dead man. And he, he didn't say a word, and Jesus had to come and put his hand on his back and raise him up. Your first sight of Jesus is going to be pretty amazing. I mean, you know, we're going to be kind of astounded when we see him and how low our view has been of him. Well, what I want to share just in my remaining moments is that repentance is where God wants us to get to and stay at. It's not just a matter of I have repented, but I am repenting. Now, repentance is not just sour puss grapes going, ah, I'm just so bad. And Repentance is an attitude of heart. It's an attitude of heart that keeps turning from my own way and turning from my own life to God's life and to His way. And it's very, very important because twice Jesus repeated it. Luke 13, 3, Luke 13, 5, within two verses, He said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, I wonder before I tell you what repentance is, if you ever know if you repented or not. I'm not sure. Well, you better make sure. You better make sure, because it's not only the beginning, it's the goal. It's a good thing. It's not just misery. It's the joy of the Lord's door right into our heart. Prepare the way of the Lord, John Baptist said. Repent. Well, in our quest for nickels and noses today and size and success in our big utilitarian type of Christianity that's not really, it's Christendom, not necessarily Christianity. I'm not being critical of the churches. I'm being critical of what's happened to the churches we often don't hear messages on repentance. In fact, messages on repentance are very rare. The only thing more rare is someone who hears a message and then does it. They say a creed. They attend some place. They listen to some message. The lost word is repentance. But I'll tell you something. God wants us to repent. What is repentance? Okay. Repentance in the Greek, the word is metanoia. It means to change the mind. So if you hear a message on repentance that says that, of course then we think we understand. It means to change my mind. And so I learn all this stuff and I believe it's true and my mind has changed. Is that true? 
That's not true. Because you see, we see our mind as being that academic part of us that we assimilate stuff, but God sees our mind as something as a man thinketh in his heart. So he is. The mind is that central intelligence center in my being that controls my direction of my whole thrust of existence. That's the mind. And that my mind is either set on the things of God or it's set on the things of the flesh. And so uh, repentance means to change the mind. It's told 58 times in the New Testament. And it really kind of means this. It's a change of moral purpose. Job's change was that he no longer... You see, all he knew was the good side of God. He knew how to praise God, and he knew theologically how to praise God when things went wrong. But on the inside, he said, you can take my money, you can take my family, you can take everything else, but don't you suggest for a moment that I've done anything to make this happen to me. There's no reason. And he's right, there was no reason. But you see, by defending himself, it says that he actually condemned God. He actually condemned God. And by looking back to his past, instead of possessing God now, he was actually condemning God. You say, this is, boy, this is amazing. I, I can see it in your eyes. This is why he's so far down the road from where we are. It's a learning tool for us. Uh, it's, it's a change of moral purpose. Repentance is when you care enough to quit. It's when you want God enough to give up what you know he is showing you is inconsistent with him. It's a change in the soul's intention. You see, some people will change their environment of their body and start going to church, or they'll start reading the Bible, or they'll start acting like uh, a Christian, like you join the Boy Scouts or something, or join the Army. They'll make you act like you're a jarhead. But I'm going to tell you something. When you leave, you always go back, don't you? Well, usually, if you're normal, or if you, or you try to go back. Uh, but you see... Uh, God wants it to be permanent down in the heart where we never go back, where it's permanent forever. You see, sin is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. You don't just figure it out. I don't just figure out what sin is. The Holy Spirit has shown me. And when God shows me what sin is, it's not just to make me feel bad. It's so I'll act on it by according to His Word and be cleansed of it. He doesn't give me a revelation of sin to condemn, but to conform if I'll let him be a surgeon and not just a beauty shop owner. We treat the Word of God like cosmology. I mean, well, however, cosmet cosmetician. We go and we, we, we want preachers that, that itch our, scratch our itching ears, but God says it's a knife. It's going to cut down and get down to where you really, really live. Now, repentance is a course of direction and life that's possible only when the one who sees his sin really wants it. You're going to have to want it. And not emotionally. I'm not talking, nobody likes what we're talking about tonight. This is basic though. I mean, nobody likes being shown how sinful they are. If you do, then you're weird. I'm serious. I mean, when God shows us our sin, it's a horrible thing. But then he, in, the, in the black drop of our sin, he brings the diamond of grace and shines the light on it. And it twinkles and casts light everywhere. And of course we take grace because we see our sin. We've left off that revelation of sin to a Christ-hating world. And we've come and just said, Jesus loves you and there's no fear of God. Because we haven't also told them, you must repent. God loves you, but you must act on what this revelation of goodness actually is. So, remember that picture in Matthew 21? A certain man had two sons and he said to one, go out and tend the farm. And he says, I'll go. But he didn't go afterwards. He says to another, his other son, you go. And he says, I will not. But he changes his mind and he does. Which of the two did the father's will, he asked the Pharisees. And they said, well, the one who changed his mind, and then, I mean, the one who said he wouldn't, but then went. Practical acting on the word. He changed his mind and he did it. And then Jesus said, by showing what is right by your answer, you've condemned yourself because you see the principle in your own life, but you're not living it. Because John the Baptist came to you and he said, repent, and you're not willing. You're saying, we will, but you're not. And he says, you didn't repent so that afterwards you could believe me. See, re repentance there preceded believing God. It means I want to get in the position where I can hear God. If you want to hear God this weekend, then get in the position where you can hear Him. You see, you've got to get low before Him in your heart. You've got to get yielded before Him. Nobody's saved by repentance. I'm not saying that but nobody's saved without it. 
You'll never be saved without repentance. Uh, belief in God is not the same thing as faith. You see, belief, in, belief is the Spirit showing me something that's revelation, but belief becomes faith when I act on what the Lord has showed me. And I'm saved by grace through faith. By faith, by the grace of God, He puts His Word in me and I act on it. It's the gift of God, that faith, and I act and I'm saved. So, submission is the real test of repentance. It's when God shows me something, and even though I don't understand, like Job, I say, be it unto me according to your word. You see, if there's a but, yes, but, in your life, then the test for you lies at that but. That's the area of controversy. What is it that you want me to do for you? The Lord says, this. And the Lord says, how about this over here first? You say, yes, I'll deal with that, but... Oh, no, He says, here's where we start. We start over here. So repentance is that inner renouncing of self-centered living, sin-centered living. And it's, it, it's, a, it's allowing God to crush that inner selfishness and uh, that, that disagreement with God's will to where I move into that ever-choosing of His will forever. It's an inner attitude that always results in outer fruit. That's why John Baptist says, bring forth fruits worthy or proving of real repentance. See, the repentance is not what you do out here. The repentance takes place on the inside, in the heart, in the inner mind of purpose. But it always, if it's real, results in visual reality. You can say you repented all you want, but if you hadn't cared about God enough to quit, you're just kidding yourself. You don't have power. You say, I don't have power. Well, then you're either lost or rebellious. Because every single Christian in this room has the power to deal with sin because it comes in every promise. In every promise of God, there's, a, there's, there's power. And in every command, there's a promise. Forsake this. And with that's a promise of His presence. So my attitude must be changed. You see, the whole purpose of God is to make men holy and to present them to God. That's his whole purpose of God in Christ, that he might bring every man together in Christ. And so just think for one second. I want you just to see, this is not some Johnny-come-lately doctrine. And you write these scriptures down. We don't have time to go to them. But you just think about John the Baptist came. You read Matthew chapter 3. And his first word he preached was repentance. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. Repent. And he said it not just to the Jews. He said it to soldiers. And he said it to other people. It wasn't just a word for Jews. Uh, prepare the way of the Lord and let it be reality. Well, after John was put in prison, Jesus came. And after, he, after John was finished preaching in Matthew 4, 17, uh, Jesus came and the first word he says, he began to preach and he preached what? Father loves you. No. Repent. In fact, he says to one one, uh, in one place in Mark 2, 17, I came to call sinners to repentance. That's why He came. And He says uh, to a city that, that He rebuked a whole city that wouldn't repent. He said, because you wouldn't repent. Uh, Nineveh preached after Jonah, but you won't repent. He said a rich man was in hell because he didn't repent in Luke 16. Well, after Jesus, then the disciples began to preach in, Luke, in Mark 6, 12. And it says they went out and began to preach. First time they preached, repent. That's the first message of John Baptist, first message of Jesus, first message of the disciples. Well, Al, that's before the resurrection. Well, after the resurrection too, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 38, Peter stands up and he says, smile, God loves you. No, he didn't say that. He said the equivalent, frown, God may hate you. You took with wicked hands and crucified him. And now this one you crucified, he's in charge. Now you happen to be fortunate because he loves you. He's of great character. But whether he didn't or not, you better get on his side. That's what he's saying. He said God's made him Lord, curious. He's in charge of the whole thing. And then they were pricked in their hearts and they, and they said, What shall we do? Just bow your head and close your eyes and say this prayer. Repeat after me. I'm a sinner. Yes, I admit it. Yes. No. There's nothing you can do. Only God can open your heart. He didn't say that either. He didn't say, uh, only believe your sins are forgiven. He said, repent. 
and then follow through with that, with baptism in lieu of the fact your sins are washed away in Jesus. And um, well, that's the Jews, Al. Well, to Cornelius was the same thing. When, uh, the, when they went and preached to Cornelius, he came and reported to the uh, Jerusalem council, and he saw that Cornelius and them had repented before God. He says, God has given them repentance unto life. Which came first? Repentance came before life. And let me tell you something. Repentance comes before the new birth. But God's working to bring you, to draw you. It's His grace that draws you. There is no grace for the unrepentant. In fact, repentance is a response to grace. It's not cheap grace. It's real grace that God gives. And Peter later wrote, at the end of his life, he said, God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. He's not wanting anybody to perish. He is long-suffering toward us so that man could have more time. No, repent. See, that's why he's waiting. He wants more people to repent. Repentance is responding to the grace of God. That's what repentance is. You respond to God's grace. You'd already be dead if He didn't have grace on you. Well, Paul preached the same thing. He came to the, Ath- the, to the, uh, the, the people in Athens in sophisticated Mars Hill, and uh, he says to them, he looks around and sees their idolatry, very religious, very superstitious. He says, I perceive you are very uh, uh, religious and you worship the unknown God. Look on the wall there, the unknown God. Listen, you've been worshiping Him ignorantly. I want to tell you about Him. I want to declare to you who He is. And he preached Jesus and he said, listen, God has winked at all this stuff, Acts 17, 30. He winked at this for a time, but now he commands all men everywhere, that's us brothers, to repent because he has appointed a day in the which he's going to judge the secrets of my heart by that man Jesus who he raised from the dead. So you need to repent. You see, that's to us. Now, would God command me to repent if it were impossible? Would you tell your son or daughter to pick up uh, 20 pounds if you knew they couldn't? And when they try, you'd kick them and say, I said, pick it up. Well, of course you wouldn't. That'd be a lousy father. Well, would God tell a person to repent if he didn't give them before they were told that, the power to do it? Listen, you don't have to worry about whether, well, I just can't repent, Al. I just don't have the power. Your problem is a wicked heart. If God tells you to repent and you know you need to, then you've got all you need to deal with it in reality and you need to act on it. And to ex- if, if you don't do it, then you condemn God by your activity. You obey God. Don't worry about whether it's legalism or, oh, it's, you're putting me under the law. You need to be under the law. You need to be under the law until it puts you to death so you can be raised by the grace of God and newness of life. The problem is we try to be exempt from the law and there's no fear of God. Lord, you know I hate this sin. Give me the power to repent. That's deception, brother. That's deception. If you know it's sin, God's already given you the power to deal with it. It's not a matter of being able. It's a matter of being willing. We deceive ourselves. The Bible says it's the deceitfulness of sin. It's very, very deceptive, and we need to truly repent. Well, Paul says that we're to have repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, see, repentance towards God is turning from sin, self, and Satan, darkness, and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ is turning toward the light. He said, listen, God granted you the grace to turn from darkness to God, from idols to the, to the light. Uh, he's saying that we must repent. Well, it's not just all those fellas that preached, and I don't mean fella, and, then, and the Lord Jesus as well. But the risen Lord as well preached repentance. In fact, His instructions to the uh, church in Luke 24, verse 47, He said that, look, you ought to do two things. You should go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of power from on high, but that you should go out and preach to all creatures everywhere that men should repent. That's what His message was. And let me tell you what, if we leave off repentance... The Great Commission becomes the grand omission and we rape the harvest field instead of reap it. And we're full of tares in all our churches. People that don't really know God but they're trying to convince themselves they do by principles and nice lists and positive social action but inside they have a heart that goes after like a muzzled dog. They keep holding back. They've never been changed because they've never been exchanged. Jesus writes to the churches. The churches who are just like I'm talking about 
And in to five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he says, repent. So it's not just for the people that are in pathetic condition. To five of the seven churches, he says, repent to the church at Ephesus that's full of good works and right doctrine. They couldn't stand evil people in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I know about you. I'm glad for all that. But you have left your first love, that's me, and I say to you, repent. In other words, I'm not the dead center priority of all that you are. <coughs> repent. Let me tell you something, brother. You'll never have spiritual feelings that match what you know the Word of God really wants you to have until you let God dredge you and repent. Brokenness of heart prepares the way for joy in the Spirit. And to the proportion that you're willing to let God break you this weekend and get back to the necessary things, that is the extent to which you'll leave here with the joy of the Lord when you leave. You can have emotions and you can have sorrow at God's Word. Well, look, Felix trembled. And Esau wept. And Saul said, uh, uh, I have sinned. But none of them repented. You can come down here and pray and wet the rug with your tears, but uh, you see, it might be the tears of a rebellious child saying, I'm not going to do it. Crying because you can't have your own way. Listen, when my children are crying, I can tell the moment their will breaks. There's kind of a, kind of a leveling off, you know, in that discipline. I'm serious. They, you can tell. There's a submission of will. We want relief, but not a cure. And I tell you what, God wants a cure and not necessarily relief. Because he knows if we get relieved, then we'll get slack and become carnal. The greatest temptation of all, maybe, is to live a life without temptation. You can be sorry for sin while you're clinging to idols. Did you know that? You can be sorry and ask for help, and that not be repentance. Fear of judgment and adjusting your behavior accordingly is not repentance. You're afraid you're going to get sizzled, and so you don't do it anymore. That's not repentance. Repentance is when your heart comes into agreement with God and His holiness, and His character, and His person. Well, you can be almost persuaded. You can have conviction. But let me tell you something. Conviction is God's part. He's faithful. He brought you here. He's going to point out things. And just because you say, that's right, that's right, I'm pathetic, doesn't mean you've repented. You're going to have to confess and act, you see, on what He shows. I'm going to have to do that. I've asked God to melt my heart afresh this weekend. That was my prayer request. Melt my heart afresh. I want to be... Yours in a new, a new heat. I can try to do all these things. I can, you can give all your money to your church. You can knock on doors to your bloody knuckles. It won't make up for repentance. Reading your Bible to the covers off and memorizing Scripture and all those things. Penance, that's all that is. If you hadn't repented. If you hadn't come into a moral agreement with God for the reason for your life on earth. Not just to get blessed. Listen, if all God wanted to do was heal you when He saved you, He'd have taken you to heaven at that moment. If all God wanted to do was bless you when He saved you, He'd have just drowned you at baptism. If all He wanted to do was teach you how to worship, He'd have taken you on to heaven right then. You'd have choked on your amen because they're worshiping perfect there. I tell you, God has something more, and that's that you bring forth fruit, and that it be much fruit, and that your fruit remain. Not just fruit of the Spirit, but fruit of a Christian being another Christian, making disciples, being left on earth to enter His purposes. And when I really repent, I've changed my moral purposes. And so, that's what the Lord wants us to do tonight. Daily repentance, coming to the agreement of attitude with God's Spirit and never satisfying for the role of Christian, Christianity. I've got to have the reality of being a real Christian who has God's heart. So lay hold of His heart for you. And don't be like the Pharisees who were white and sepulchers on the outside but had dead men's bones on the inside. Oh, wickedness on the inside. Lusts and all those unclean things while the outside was in perfect religious legal order. God's looking at our hearts tonight, brother. And I tell you what, there's a whole lot more at stake than most of us realize. There's a warfare going on here. And God has already won that warfare but I've got to totally surrender to the captain. See, this is a warfare that's different. He's the one that takes me captive. And his army, though a captive, is victorious. I wonder if there are any repentant men here tonight. I wonder if God could really take us where he took Job. Are you willing for that in order to know him? He's way down the road from where we are. Well, let's pray.
You've promised to give repentance, Father, to every heart that wants it. It's a gift of God. And how blessed to know that that same grace of that first hour to any needy heart, that grace that we know is still available. You are faithful. You confront us in love, firm love, and holy consistency. And you save us from our own sentimental commitments and bring us to reality, and that's what we want. Lord, remove the evil from our lives so that the good that is Jesus can fill us. And don't let us be content with the worldly sorrow that has an emotional release and maybe an outward twitch but keeps going back to the same old slop pit. Oh, may we have that godly sorrow tonight and this weekend that that brings a fear of the Lord into our life and cleans and clears our life and gives us a hatred for sin and a fear of God and a desire for the Lord Jesus and zeal for His will and kingdom and a revenging of ourselves against the very things of the devil that once defeated us. Oh, may we be like Job, freed from ourselves to enter the purposes of God. Free us from religious outwardness And may it be spiritual reality tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.